Today on Ag News Daily. He's very involved in this discussion. He said, Greg, I'll tell you about Brexit. Brexit is the most complicated thing in the history of complicated things. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here on this Friday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. I'm joined by Delaney Howell. And Delaney, it's not exactly a Friday, is it, outdoors or in the markets? No, it's cold and rainy and gross, blah. It's a good, like, movie day. Yeah, it really is. That's what today is. It's gray. And I tell you, Delaney, I'm going to be honest. This is the first day of fall where I am really considering turning my furnace on. The house is down to about 67 degrees, which means mm-hmm. my hands are getting cold, and I hate that. I left my my windows open last night in my apartment, so it was a little that, chilly in my apartment. That's insane. Why would you do that? <laughs> it's I cold. like being. I know I like being cold, but maybe not that cold. Actually, it's still oh. kept pretty warm, though. I think it's, my thermometer says it's at 70. Oh, okay. So well, that's that, fine. That's that's bearable. 72 really ought to be the minimum uh, human habitation, but 70 is doable. I like to be chillier. Well, well, that's that's insane. I, I can't trust you, Natalie. That's um, fine. I don't trust you either, Mike. That being said, let's save this debate until we're <laughs> off the air, Delaney. Come yeah. on, we're professionalism <laughs> okay. here. Okay. Um, you know, speaking of Chile, we mm. had some news today that chilled the soybean markets. And, well, additionally, uh, corn and wheat also took it on the chin. Do you want to tell us what happened today, Delaney? Yes, we had the U.S. quarterly grain stocks and small grains report, and it did not bode well for the markets, as you mentioned there. Yeah, what the biggest surprise was in soybeans. Do you have the numbers handy? Can you run through it for us? I do. So... It was, yeah, I would say the biggest surprise was maybe corn or soybeans, and the average trade was expecting about 2 billion bushels in carryover for corn. We got 2.14 soybeans. We The average trade guess was 394 million bushels, and we saw 438. Wheat was 2.35 billion bushels. We saw uh, 2.379 as actual from USDA. I think corn was up seven or nine percent and wheat was up 45 percent as compared to last year. Yeah, Delaney, I tell you, the statistic that jumped out at me is this is the largest soybean ending stocks number in 11 years. Mm. So, uh, you know, on top of what is looking to be a pretty big crop coming out of the field, we definitely lost a little bit more premium in the soybean market. We'll cover that here in just a little bit. But Delaney, what other news do you have going on for us today? I've got quite a, I guess, a little bit of news today. Um, as we look at E15 that's been in headlines lately, and I saw one today that jumped out at me. The White House is considering imposing restrictions on trading of biofuel credits, hoping to discourage speculation and reduce costs for oil refiners to comply with U.S. biofuels policy. Have you seen Yeah, this? I did. I saw that earlier this week, and I'll be interested to see how they end up trying to restrict trading. Usually, when you quote, try to restrict restrict speculation, you know, you end up hurting the market altogether mm-hmm. because you lose liquidity. So I, I wonder what this, uh, I don't know, I just, I wonder what this is going to look like by the time they roll it out. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see, Mike. All right, yeah, interesting indeed, Delaney. We've got some other interesting news here from the American Farm Bureau. They and a coalition of business groups are asking a federal court in Georgia to expand its prior order and delay the implementation of WOTUS in all 50 states rather than just the original 11. Now we're up to, what, 28 or so Mm -hmm. that have been exempted. 
So, yeah, so AFBF and uh, these other court the groups are trying to get this pushed to every state, which would, I think, be good news for everybody. So that would just delay implementation until the administration has time to either repeal or change WOTUS themselves? Yes. At the end of the day, we still need a new WOTUS because there are two conflicting Supreme Court uh, decisions. Mm-hmm. Then so it, the EPA has to clarify it. But, yeah, hopefully if they can get it uh, – whatever they call it, or get the injunction against it in these other states, then nobody will have to worry about it. Nobody will have to spend any money trying to comply with it until the administration comes up with a new rule or, you know, if I doubt this would happen, or the administration could decide we want to stick to old WOTUS and they could rewrite it, I guess. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I don't but know. I... We'll keep an eye on that and see what happens. Okay. But I think I thought we – talked about earlier they pulled a team off of this or they aren't allocating any money to the WOTUS repeal um did that pass or was that part of the oh, farm bill no I don't think it was part of the farm bill I think it was something separate I think it was okay. part of the, just the budget oh well yeah then maybe we won't be spending any money regardless I don't know you know you get in DC politics and budgetary mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. I have no idea the end of the day at least this would take it off the state's radars until until EPA ends up doing something, I suppose. Right. Well, we do see, uh, speaking of legislation, we will see the farm bill run out on Sunday, and the clock is now ticking. Farm bill negotiators say that they are trying to get it passed now by the end of the year, or uh, more so before midterm elections, but I'm not sure that that's going to happen, Mike. Now, that would be quite a hill to climb, but... They've been working faster on this farm bill than I anticipated the entire mm-hmm. time. So I, I don't know. They say um, SNAP is one of the points that is challenging for them to get things fixed. But there are a couple other major issues that they say are uh, holding up the process. So it's not just SNAP. That's what they wanted to emphasize. So we will see. All right. Well, Delaney, I've got a batch of trade news to get into, and I thought that would be fitting for today's Friday episode since we are going to play part of uh, Undersecretary Greg's, Greg Dowd's comments from yesterday. Can you tell us a little bit about the KC Outlook Forum and, and what you learned while you were down there? So they had quite a lineup of, of speakers mostly related to trade and policy yesterday. Um, it was put on it by AgriPulse. And a couple of the people that spoke yesterday was Undersecretary Bill Northey, which I believe you played some of his comments, Mike, about specifically the uh, market facilitation program. Yep. And then we also heard from Ambassador Greg Dowd, who talked a little bit about trade. And he was very energized. He uh, had a lot of interesting things to say. We also heard from the chief economist, Robert Johansson, who was the one who uh, put together that package explaining how they created the market facilitation program. And uh, we heard from a couple other folks, but I would say the big topics or the big takeaways were definitely things revolving around NAFTA, the Chinese tariffs, African swine fever came up quite a few times and what that would do. Interesting statistic yesterday I heard about it was, um, it was either, I think it was five to 10%. If China culls their hog herd by just five to 10%, they will no longer need to import U.S. soybeans. Oh, man. And yeah. maybe African swine fever will do that for them. Right. Hmm. So. Well, 
We'll certainly look forward to hearing from uh, hearing from Greg Dowd. Won't play his whole conversation today. Just uh, just about fifteen minutes of it, where he specifically gets into some of those trade issues you mentioned, Delaney. But uh, before we do that, do you have any other news stories for us? I do have a couple other quick pieces. We are expecting to see today. Hopefully, crossing our fingers that we see the new NAFTA text today that was expected to be released because they believe they have sixty days to uh, get that sent out there, and they're looking for. I guess, for it to be finalized by November 30th before President Nieto leaves office. A lot of people commented on that yesterday at the Outlook as well. So I, Ambassador Dowd said we would see it today or early next week. So I think we'll uh, continue watching for that. And then as we look at other legislation that could pass, the uh, there's a bipartisan bill that was presented on, in Congress on Wednesday to help with opioid addiction, House and Senate mm. negotiators reached an agreement that, among other things, calls for expanding Medicaid coverage for addiction and prevention programs, beefing up law enforcement efforts to reduce the flow of illegal drugs, and accelerating research to find non-addictive painkillers. Oh. So, as we know, rural America is definitely one who suffers from opioid addiction. Yes, that is for sure. All right. Well, thanks, Delaney. Well, I've got just one quick trade story to get to before we hear from Ambassador Dowd, and this is out of China. We've talked a lot about how the China-U.S. trade war has impacted soybeans, but Delaney, did you know there was another market that has been impacted by this pretty severely in agriculture? Mm, Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of markets that have been impacted severely. Well, this one was interesting. This is the seafood market. I never would have guessed that. Like catfish or shrimp? Um, It is primarily shrimp coming from Southeast Asia to the U.S., and it is primarily lobster going from the U.S. into China are the Mm. two that have been hit. Canada has exported almost twice the amount of lobster that it did in years past because of the tariffs coming from the U.S., and about $3 billion worth of Chinese seafood imported into the U.S. as of Monday is now facing that 10% tariff. And so food companies are having to completely rejigger their supply chains and uh, find ways to make this work. I, I just thought that was fascinating. Hmm. And I, I'm going to reach out to a couple of people in the article here and try to learn more about the aquaculture side of agriculture for the podcast. Yeah, that sounds pretty neat, Mike. Well, that is interesting, but I suppose we better rip this Band-Aid off, Delaney, and get to the markets. What do you think? Yeah, it's uh, definitely a Band-Aid to rip off today. It's a great day if you're an end user. It's a tough day if you're a producer. Right. All right, folks, and remember, our markets are brought to us by our friends at the Zaner Group. Ted Seifert has been out all day today talking to reporters helping producers manage the risk that was unveiled today from this USDA report. And if you want to be proactive, get in touch with them at Zaner. You can reach them at 312-277-0050 or find them on the web at zaner.com and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. Well, as we jump down the markets here, starting with corn, the Dees corn contract closed down eight and a half cents at three fifty six and a quarter. The March also down eight and a half to finish at three sixty eight even. In soybeans, the November contract down nine and a half cents, finished the week at eight forty five and a half. January also dropped nine and a half to close at eight fifty nine and a half. In the wheat pit, Chicago December wheat down four cents at five oh nine even. The March down three and a half, closed at five twenty seven and a quarter. Jumping over to the world of livestock, we 
did see some green on the screen. Cash cattle trade has been a light so far this morning, but the October live cattle contract was up 22.5 cents at 113.45. The December up 27.5 to finish at 118.85. And in feeders, the October contract up 32.5 cents at 158.17.50. The November up 42.5 to close at 158.05. And strength again in lean hogs. The October contract up 87.5 cents at 62.17.50. The December up $2.45 closed the week at 57.92 and a half. And of course, a quick look at the dairy market. Here we've got class three milk September contract unchanged on the day. The October down 18 cents at 15.77. Well, without further ado, let's kick it over to Greg Dowd's comments from yesterday at the KC Ag Outlook Forum. There's a lot of things that have to happen here. Uh, we made a big announcement yesterday that, uh, that I'll talk about here in a little bit that's absolutely critical related to Japan. But for the last few weeks here, we've been working nonstop on NAFTA. And, of course, when it comes to Mexico, the instructions from agriculture were obviously do no harm. And that's right. I mean, when you, when you have zero tariffs and, and uh, Mexico's your, you know, arguably your second or third biggest market for U.S. agricultural products, you, nothing really too much to fix there. Uh, what we did do with regard to Mexico, and, and you're going to see some text on it very, very soon, was try to uh, work on things for the next 25 years. You know, you have to keep in mind when we did NAFTA the first time, the Internet didn't exist yet. And, and yet you see today the things that are changing in agriculture with regard to that. Um, so we, uh, we've got to have an ability to talk about new types of biotechnology, the CRISPR technology, gene editing, things like that, in the context of trade. And, we, of course, we have a great relationship with Mexico uh, on these technology issues. I wish we had the relationship with country, parts of the world like the EU that we do in North America related to that. Uh, but we have to work together uh, with our major trading partners in the world to continue to help people understand how important that is. Um, with regard to uh, Canada and NAFTA, uh, I have to tell you that we have spent more time on this dairy issue than anything. I, for for you, those of you that don't understand, you know, I read a New York Times article that talked about the similarities between the U.S. and Canadian dairy systems. I can't think of two entities that look the same but could not be more different. Canada's dairy system is like our old tobacco program. You have to have quota to have a dairy cow in Canada. If you don't have quota, you can't sell milk in Canada. It's a closed system. And a couple of years ago, uh, their demand for butter was going up and imports were coming into Canada because of their closed system, so they decided to rejigger their prices to raise their production. Their production of, of milk has gone like this. Well, when you do that and meet the demand for butter, what ends up happening is you have a bunch of, of uh, protein, skim milk powder. You think of it as, you, know, you would say the word byproduct, but that's not necessarily what it is, that you create more of that than you have the demand for, so you have to move that out onto world markets. Well, it ended up in a situation where Canada for the last couple of years, has been selling skim milk powder into Mexico, driving it through the United States, selling it to Mexico, cheaper than we can sell it from dairies in New Mexico and Arizona into Mexico, which would tell you maybe something was amiss and how that was working. 
we have spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out how to deal with this. Uh, I, I will tell you that uh, Ambassador Lighthizer, with the hours that we have spent trying to explain this, help understand the complexities of this. Um, you know, when I worked on the Senate Ag Committee and we talked about dairy, uh, I'll, I'll tell a little story here. Senator Roberts, he said, I'll, I'll tell you about dairy. He said, when you say the word dairy, me and my, my reaction is, you know, he's an old K-State football Bill Snyder fan, obviously. The assistant to the assistant tight ends coach is what they call him. He says, but when it comes to dairy, he said, my answer is punt. <laughs> uh, it's because it is just extraordinarily complicated. Uh, but Ambassador Lighthizer has worked really hard on this. We've all worked really hard to get our head around this. And, and now we're at a point in this discussion where, frankly, Canada has to make a decision. We, uh, it's time to figure out what we're going to do here with regard to NAFTA. It's time. And so hopefully, uh, with regard to dairy, poultry, eggs, wine, these are some of the things that issues that uh, now, you know, it was in, in the U.S.-Canadian Free Trade Agreement of 1988, some 30 years ago, they didn't mess with dairy products. And NAFTA in 94, they didn't mess with dairy. I now understand why. It's just way too complicated to try to figure out. The, the way I describe it is, you know, it's, it's the, the old analogy of a square peg in a round hole. Well, this is more like a Rubik's Cube in a round hole. It just, it, it's hard to make it fit and, and come together and, and make it work, but we've, uh, we've worked very hard to do that, and, and hopefully uh, we can bring this thing home. But uh, we, we, uh, there are some things here that still have to come together to make that happen. Finally, Sarah, after how many months of alluding to it, suggesting, talking about how important it might be, today, as of yesterday afternoon, we can talk about Japan. And to me, this is a really important topic. And, and one of the reasons this is an important topic is because my very first job out of graduate school in Ag Econ at K-State was to be the very first ever assistant director of the U.S. Wheat Associates office in Portland, Oregon. And back then and even today, about 40% of U.S. wheat exports go out of Portland to Asia. And uh, back in those days, I don't know what it is today, but back in those days, there were 11 Japanese trading houses in Portland. And my boss and I, uh, it was pretty interesting, a farm boy from Kansas, suddenly learning on almost on a daily basis how to have lunch with chopsticks. And you begin to understand the complexity of, of these big Japanese trading houses, Marabeni, Mitsui, Mitsubishi, Kanamatsu, Sumitomo. Itochu, some of the largest companies and trading entities in the world, and their global reach in all commodities and all things, but even the enormity of, of what they do in agriculture. And then going to world perspectives and having all of those companies as clients and, and going to Tokyo to, to meet with them at their headquarters. And then, obviously, Mike and I, reminisce about the days of, uh, of the cow that stole Christmas, Mad Cow, in 2003, and the years we spent trying to rebuild our beef export markets, and obviously an enormous amount of time spent with Japan. What I want to emphasize to you today is, is that relationship that U.S. farmers and U.S. agriculture have with Japan and Japanese consumers, 
the Japanese people is extraordinary. And it is, it is really, really important that we maintain that relationship. It's our, it's our third largest uh, export market historically. I think this year it's our fifth largest market, but when you th think about that, it's $12 billion in ag products we send to Japan, $2.1 billion in corn, $1.9 billion in beef. That's up a half a billion from the days I started at the Cattlemen. Uh, $1.8 billion in pork, uh, $973 million in soybeans, and $713 million in wheat. And interestingly enough, this wheat discussion is really, really important because, uh, and this has been an enormous concern of mine in that uh, we know that next year in April, sometime in April, Japan and Europe have a trade deal that kicks in. We know that Australia and Canada, with regard to TPP, have a deal with Japan that kicks in. And I have been very concerned that if we didn't get busy and get with the program, and in fact, uh, I know there's a guy here in the room that would, had just come from Japan, came to my office in Washington, D.C., and he said, Greg, uh, the Japanese importers are telling us, look, we love U.S. pork. We much prefer it to the European product. But if your tariffs are going to be 15, 18, 20 percent different sometime next year, we're going to, the relationship is going to change. We knew with regard to wheat and, and some of the analysis that had been done, if we don't get this done, the relationship with meat, wheat, with our exports of wheat to Japan may actually be hit the hardest. So where I am absolutely delighted that we're going to have an opportunity to do this, and, and my understanding is we're going to do it in kind of a two-phase operation. We're going to start with the, the good side of the equation first, and agriculture will be a, a part of that conversation. And then we're going to follow up later uh, with the, uh, more of the investment and, and uh, that kind of discussion. So I think given what we've already done in the context of uh, TPP, I think we have a, a good opportunity here to make sure that we uh, are able to solidify our relationship with J Japan for years to come here. But that's not all we're talking about. We're uh, also busy looking at other uh, relationships in, in Southeast Asia, and, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be able to have conversations about that uh, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, we're also looking at Africa and uh, very cognizant of the inroads that China has made into Africa in recent years, and, and uh, we, we want to make sure that uh, we're, uh, we're on that continent as well. Um, one of the things that I have been really heartened by, really appreciative of, is my boss, Ambassador Lighteiser, his emphasis on the importance of agriculture with regard to our discussions with the European Union. He, uh, Ambassador Lighthizer, if you don't know, was actually the staff director on the Senate Finance Committee for Chairman Bob Dole. When Dole was chairman of the Finance Committee back in the 1980s, Ambassador Lighthizer was his staff director. And you keep in mind, Bob, back in those days, that was when the, all the fuss with Europe began to begin with agriculture, and, and we began to, to lock horns like this. He remembers those days. Uh, I, I will tell you, Ambassador Lighthizer, this, I think this is one of the reasons he took the job, is he's, he is looking forward to that debate and discussion. 
And he has made it very, very clear that we are not going to have a conversation on trade with the Europeans that is not going to include agriculture. Agriculture absolutely will be a part of this discussion. And uh, l let me tell you, folks, I've been following this trade stuff for a long time. But when I came into this job here nearly seven months ago, I was shocked at where the Europeans are headed with regard to issues such as pesticides. Those of you in animal agriculture, and I know Kansas City is the animal agricultural corridor of the world right now, if you are not absolutely petrified by what the European Union is considering with regard to antibiotics, you better pay attention really quick. Where they are headed it is an enormous pr problem for consumers everywhere in the world. I just, I, I can't understand what their thinking is. Antibiotics are a critical component of making sure we have health, healthy animals, folks. This, this is not the 17th century. We, we have got to be able to use technology and animal husbandry and what we do in terms of medicine in a way that improves the quality of animals as well as humans. And I don't understand where the European Union is headed in this regard, but it, it, it truly frightens me. And this has to be a part of this conversation. And this is a room that can help lead that discussion. And it has to occur. Um, we are going to have an opportunity, I hope, in the not-too-distant future to have a conversation with regard to the UK, the United Kingdom. Um, I can't begin to explain to you the complexity of what this Brexit situation is. We, you could have an entire day seminar on that and, and not get your head around it. Suffice it to say, uh, Mike, that uh, you know our old trade lawyer Gary Horlick, is, uh, who's uh, actually was the uh, uh, very fam famous trade lawyer. He was our, in, the industry lawyer for the United States in the beef hormone case. Uh, he's chaired WTO panels. He's very involved in this discussion. He said, Greg, I'll tell you about Brexit. Brexit is the most complicated thing in the history of complicated things. Um, but, but the point being is that depending on how this discussion and relationship goes, we have to be ready to have that conversation with the U.K. in terms of a trade deal. And uh, that's, that's something that uh, is, is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in, in my regard to, to change and shift the paradigm here. All right, well, some good comments there from Greg Dowd, and hopefully we'll bring, be bringing you guys a couple other insights from the conference. I think that there was just a lot of information that producers need to hear that some of our legislators and folks from D.C. are sharing with, with agribusiness people yesterday in Kansas City. Absolutely. I'm glad you got these recordings. And listeners, stay tuned this next week. We'll be going through and kind of chopping them up, making them a little bit more uh, uh, conducive for podcast listening. And we'll be playing the news that Delaney heard throughout the next week. And Delaney, if listeners want to follow along or get caught up with older podcasts over the weekend, where should they go? They can head to agnewsdaily.com or they can interact with us on social media, on Facebook and on Twitter by searching for at Agnews Daily. With that, Mike, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.